This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Addiction on Trial, Tragedy in Down East, Maine, a Sean Marks thriller, and the author is Stephen Cassells, and Dr. Cassells joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Doctor. Hello, Steve. It's nice to be with you today. Great to have you with us. I think everyone's going to really find this so interesting because uh, we all know the problems in society in general about addiction. And here, of course, addiction on trial. You're you're turning uh, your experiences, emergency medicine and addiction medicine, as you put it, into a journey of suspense in this legal thriller medical murder mystery and, of course, you'll explore love and loss and family dysfunction and the what-ifs of life. So it has a little bit of everything, and, and the reviews were just saying this is a page-turner. I mean, this is a really different uh, a slant on the problems of addiction. Entertain us and teach us at the same time. Before we get into the details, the characters, uh, tell us a little bit about your background, Doctor, and why you decided to do this. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Steve. I initially was trained in emergency medicine and became board certified in emergency medicine. And after many years of working in the emergency room, and it's different than what you obviously see on TV, but there, there is the aspect of opening up uh, people's chests who have been shot and, and, and taking bugs out of little kids' ears and dealing with all of the, of the uh, types of illnesses that present to the emergency room in between. But what became obvious to me is that in some emergency rooms, 50%, and in many emergency rooms, certainly large uh, minority of patients were there related to the disease of addiction. And what I mean by that is whether you have a, a child who's in your emergency room because they have asthma because the father smokes, or you have a teenage pregnancy, or you have, for example, automobile accidents, or people with heart disease, because they smoke cigarettes or there are altercations because people are intoxicated or people have strokes. All of those are directly or indirectly can be related to the disease of addiction. And so it interested me, in addition to my background and appreciation for toxicology, to then explore this further. And I gradually, over some years, morphed my practice in emergency medicine into addiction medicine. And so that's really where I have evolved as far as a physician and my medical practices. So there's a theme in this book concerning addiction that it's a disease and needs treatment. Is that what you're trying to, the bottom line message? Well, that, certainly that is one of the messages. There are several messages. Over the years, as I would give lectures uh, to people about the disease of addiction, it seemed to me that the people who would approach uh, or come up uh, or attend the lectures, uh, it ended up that I was preaching to the choir. People knew about it. Uh, and I think that with the defunding, and I want to emphasize defunding of access for treatment and length of treatment for people with the disease of addiction, as well as the whole issue of undertreating or having lack of, a, of appropriate availability for mental health illnesses, 
what's happened is is that we have created a situation in which we've become discriminatory against those people with the disease of addiction. And so I wanted to educate in a broader sense the society and maybe even our politicians how we are spending more money by not treating this disease than if we were to treat it. But who wants to read another scientific book about addiction? Right. I mean, certainly I don't. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and I always desired to write fiction. And I, over, I, mean, I put about 2,500 hours into this book, writing over about five years. And I came up with the idea to create an entertaining, fast-paced, medical murder mystery legal thriller while also trying to educate through the back door without heavy scientific jargon. Uh, so you could bring it to the beach and read it and enjoy it and not get much out of it from the addiction point of view if you weren't interested in that and sort of focus on the characters and who killed Annette and did Jimmy kill Annette and will Sean Marks, that egotistical but likable Boston attorney who comes to Downey's Maine to live on a sailboat, save Jimmy in this riveting trial? Or you could also read it and enjoy it from that point of view and also learn learn a bunch about it, uh, about the disease of addiction through testimony at trial uh, and also through some lectures and and so I I don't want to sort of self-aggrandize myself but I, I think it sort of crosses a little bit into literary fiction in which I'm really trying to teach through the the means of a of a fictional uh, story well why don't so you give us a little of the theme of your book you know we have of course you've already mentioned Sean Marks this big shot Boston attorney and he's a He's a he's got a big ego, big head, but but we're gonna love him. Well, you are you are gonna love him, I guess. I certainly loved creating him, uh, but but if I can just I'll rewind just a little bit. I mean, the story opens up with a uh, a thirty year old uh, chap by the name of Jimmy Sedgwick, who is the son of an ER physician. Uh, you know, you write what you know, of course. A son of an ER physician from Kansas City, and Jimmy has migrated back to Down East Maine. Uh, to catch up with an old childhood friend of his. And, and I think one of the themes is, is that the disease of addiction has no so socioeconomic boundaries. It affects all of us. And Jimmy's from some wealth, and Travis, the uh, scalloper fisherman from down east Maine, are both heroin addicts. Uh, but Jimmy's been in recovery, and I'm not going to give away too much of the plot. This is all within sure. the first three chapters. And, and Travis goes off to sea to do a scalloping and, and, and trusts his dear friend Jimmy to uh, watch over his uh, fiancée, Annette, uh, who is a cocaine addict but does do some heroin. But both Annette and Travis are desperately trying to get clean, and we talk about their struggles. And, and uh, Jimmy is pulled over driving Annette's car with packets of cocaine in the car in his pocket and that match the cocaine packets on Annette's dining room or kitchen table, I should say. And then Annette's body is found bludgeoned at the bottom of the ravine and much to Jimmy's chagrin, uh, or to the lawyers, I should say, is uh, both Jimmy's and Annette's blood is splattered all over the dashboard of Annette's car. So it opens up in the first three chapters with that, and of course Adam, Jimmy's father and physician from Kansas City, flies into town, and, and there's a jail scene of, of them meeting, uh, and, and the story takes, it 
a bunch of twists and turns from there. Uh, but what I've tried to do is I've tried to tell this story as an omniscient narrator. So uh, it's being told through the eyes of a medical surgical specialist at, su at, at some point. It's being told through the eyes of a criminal attorney, through Jimmy's psychotherapist. But also, importantly, it's being told at times through the eyes of Jimmy and Travis and Annette. And so the reader becomes sort of a moderating force of the book. In other words, the reader is integrated as a silent member of the defense team, while still the reader empathizes with the townsfolk who think it's time just to string Jimmy up from the nearest tree, because he's from away. He's not a local. And, 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 and so this journey of suspense sort of explores the love and loss and family dysfunction and the what-ifs of life. You know, what if... Adam had raised Jimmy differently after his wife Suzanne died when Jimmy was three years old. What if Sean Marks had approached the court case in a different way? And the reader really learns things about the case before the defense team, uh, and and so they're they're on a on a road of uh, uh, or, or on this travels with the defense team, but wanting to speak desperately to Sean Marks to tell him bits of information that Sean Marks will need to discover. And, of course, will he discover it, and will Jimmy be convicted are all, mm -hmm. all parts of the book that you'll have to read, I guess, to find out. Doctor, is there a difference between being addicted to heroin, cocaine, or alcohol, or even nicotine? You know, that's a great, great question. Uh, if you look at where, I'll, I'll just, just use two as an example, because the answer to that is yes and no. And predominantly, the answer is no. Uh, there is no difference. If you look at where heroin is, affects the brain, and you look at where alcohol affects the brain, they're right next to each other in a place in the brain, a fancy word called the nucleus accumbens, which stimulates the reward pathway. You know, when you eat a nice meal, you feel good. When you go out and play a great game of tennis, you feel good. You know, other things that make us feel good. Well, that's the reward pathway. It stimulates the pleasure centers in our brain. It's interesting that the same drug, naltrexone, which blocks the effects of heroin in the brain, also has a similar effect to decrease craving of alcohol. So if you think about it from a pure biological point of view, the answer would have to be no, there's not a whole lot of difference. And, and if I can carry that down to a personal level, we discriminate against some forms of addiction. The heroin addict, for example, is thought of as a bad addiction, but yet we think of don't, don't characterize nicotine or alcohol addiction in the same manner. And, and, and we have lots of people, for example, who drink alcohol and eat potato chips on Super Bowl Sunday who have heart disease, and they end up in congestive heart failure and end up in the intensive care unit for a week at a time. Or we have the, the diabetic who, quote-unquote, if I may say, falls off the dietary wagon and eats a lot of sugar and ends up in what we call diabetic ketoacidosis and ends up in the intensive care unit. And we take care of these people, but we don't cure them. They have a chronic illness. And I'd like people to start thinking about addiction in the same way because typically people say, well, how many addicts do you cure? And my answer is, well, how many people in congestive heart failure do you cure? How many people, uh, how many diabetics do you cure? The answer is that you don't cure any of them. You put them in remission, and if 90% of the time they're leading viable lives and then they fall off the wagon, haven't we still been accomplished something? 
in, in treating them. So I, I don't know if that answered your question directly, Steve. Yes, or, or, yes. Or well, it's, you know, because we do as a society uh, judge different ways dealing with what's acceptable and not acceptable in our own mind. So uh, that was a interesting point of view that you just shared. Now, what about this? This mentality that we often get into because it's too close to home, you know, not in my backyard, as you put it. Oh, that's that, that's that's another a great area to to discuss. It's it, it it's sad, unfortunately. NIMBY, N-I-M-B-Y, not in my backyard, typically refers to the fact that well, you know, we don't have this problem in our yard. It's in the neighbor's yard, you know, or not in this town. It's in the next town. Uh, if, and this is why I, I, I place a story on Mount Desert Island, in the ta- in the, in, on the real Mount Desert Island, but in the fictional town of West Haven Harbor. But it's a resort community. And what resort committee, community uh, would want to say, well, we have a drug treatment center here? That would imply you have a drug problem. And so y- your inclination is in a resort community say, well, we don't have a drug problem. We don't have a treatment center because if we say we have a treatment center, if we establish a treatment center and we say we have a drug problem, the, the uh, tourists won't come. Well, the misunderstanding and the misperception here is that we, every community has a drug problem and it's not just in the next community over. There was a, an organization that wanted a, a small group of physician base that wanted to set up a treatment center in a city which I will not name. And the mayor fought vehemently saying we don't have a problem. And on the same day on the front page where it said, mayor stops treatment center from citing in this particular town, next to it was two arrested for heroin possession and distribution at the local mall. Hmm. So I think that really summarizes some of the frustrations that I have had uh, in, 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 in the whole aspect of, of trying to expand treatment for the disease of addiction. And, and if you don't feel as if, again, we should take care of these people, that it's self-inflicted, yes, to some degree it is self-inflicted, but it's a biopsychosocial illness, and there is some genetic predisposition uh, to developing the disease of addiction, no different than uh, a genetic predisposition to diabetes, and if people are overweight, they tend to stimulate that genetic predisposition greater and more likely to need insulin. So there, there are some analogies here, but if you don't want to treat people and you, uh, with addiction and you don't want to believe that it's anything that they can't just stop themselves, set that aside for a minute. And as I've done in the book with Saul Tolson's lecture to a great group in, in a very fun way, but the essence of this is that it costs between $50,000 and in some places like New York State up to $100,000 a year to incarcerate a person. It costs $30,000 a year to put that person in a halfway house and $5,000 a year per patient to treat a heroin addict with ongoing medication, urine drug testing, counseling, family counseling, and, uh, you know, on a, on a bi-weekly, uh, two, two to four time a month basis. For every dollar we spend on treatment, we save approximately $7 in cost to society, whether it be we need less police, there's less theft in stores, 
there's less incarceration, there's less spreading of illness, there's less AIDS, there's less hepatitis C. So I, have, I always like to quote the Midas commercial, you know, you can pay now or you can pay more later, but you're going to pay. Which leads me to one other quick point, if I have a minute or two more, Steve, or am I? Yes, yes, we got to uh, wrap up, but yes. Okay, but we have gaps in our mental health treatment as well. You know, people do not, there is not accessible mental health availability as it should be. And so people with depression and other Ill, uh, mental illnesses tend to self-medicate. What I mean by that is a person who's depressed and can't get care, maybe we'll use some cocaine. And a person with bipolar disease may use uh, alcohol. And, mm -hmm. and people with anxiety may drink. And, and, and other people may use heroin. And so we really need to close that gap. But, I, but again, I don't want people to think that this scientific information that I'm giving now is really the, the focus of the book. The focus of the book is to follow Sean Marks and the town through an incredible journey and a, and a murder mystery of who killed Annette, can they find out who killed Annette, or maybe Jimmy killed her, or did drugs kill her, and, and to sort of create a situation which the reader just continually turns page after page to try and figure this one out. And, and, and it takes place, as I said, on Montez Island, with Travis out at sea scalloping, suffering an injury, and, and there's a lot of sort of subplots that go on. So I, I certainly hope people will enjoy reading it, and, uh, and if they learn something from it, that's great, and if they don't, at least I've created a novel in which people can have some fun with it. And it sets the stage for the next Sean Marks thriller, Lost to Addiction, the sequel. So uh, if you love Sean Marks, you can learn more through his next book that uh, Dr. Cassells is writing. Uh, when will that one come out? Well, I'm hoping it'll come out in about a year or so. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. I've gained a lot of insight about uh, the literary world, and I've developed even greater respect for the literary world. Uh, I'm fortunate that I can make a living as a physician because I tell you, these young writers uh, who are trying to make a name for themselves, it, it, it's a tough, tough world out there. And, 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 and the reason I say that is because you spend a lot of time just trying to get the word out about your book. Sure. And I, and, sure. And I think that, the, the, you know, again, that's been somewhat time-consuming for me and very, very enjoyable. But, again, fortunately, I have a, a profession as a physician. Uh, How do we get your uh, book, Dr. Cassell's Addiction on Trial? Well, I set up a website called uh, Addiction on Trial. It's www.addictionontrial.com. But on that website, I've also set up not just snippets of the book to read, uh, but I've set up a medical blog for people to respond to and to talk about not only the book, but also the disease of addiction. And uh, I've also set up a tab for resources for people who want to uh, learn more about addiction separate from the book. Uh, and the book is available on Amazon and it's uh, online. Uh, and I have helped to subsidize it to keep the cost of the ebook down to just $3.99. And it's only about $13 and some change for the paperback. So I'm happy about that because I'd like the book widely widely read. It's also available at uh, Barnes & Nobles online and Author House, the publisher, has it. And, and if you just go to the website, there's a link there to, to the various places. And there's also links to my uh, Facebook and Twitter. Well, thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. 
Well, I appreciate it. I hope I didn't blab too much about any one thing, and I hope people will find the book. <laughs> Not at all. Thank you. Thank you okay. very much, Steve. Much appreciated. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Ignite, Getting Your Community Coalition Fired Up for Change. And the author is Francis Dunn Butterfoss, and Francis joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Francis. Hi, Steve. Well, great to have you with us. This has a, a unique, unique comparison to uh, building a fire and of course if we're going to have uh, an organization that's going to make a difference in a community you're going to have to build a fire I guess in a lot of people and then you've got to control them somehow which is the big challenge uh, there's a lot of folks that have a, a desire to help but boy there is power in organization isn't there that's right so we, we talk about you know having fire in the belly to do hard work and I think community-based work, work that depends on volunteers, really is something that requires a lot of passion and commitment from people who often already have full-time jobs. So it, it really does require that fire in the belly, and that's how I started thinking about this book is, you know, the, the spark, the fire that it takes, getting people fired up. And I thought, gee, if I could do this as a, an analogy, kind of build it as something that most people could relate to, then it might make the whole concept a little bit uh, pal more palatable, easier to uh, work with. Right. To compare it to planning, building, fueling, and sustaining a campfire. So let's get right down to the bottom line, uh, right to the basics. Why don't you first define a community coalition? What is it? Well, a community coalition is an organization of organizations, essentially. So it's a group of diverse organizations, and it can also have individuals who come together around a specific goal and really build on the diversity of the community to accomplish that goal. And, of course, if you're going to have that kind of coalition, there really has to be a very a cooperative uh, uh, approach uh, really has, you've got to, co 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 what's the word? Collaborate. Collaborate, uh, everyone's, correct. Yeah, you've got to really uh, bring people together and have them catch the same vision, which, which with volunteers can be, I'm sure, very challenging. 
Right. And and I think, you know, most people think that if people just have the right enthusiasm, if they have that fire, they can get anything done. And in some cases, that actually can be true. But the kind of issues that that I'm talking about, that I'm working with around the country, around uh, violence prevention, gun safety, um, crime, housing conditions that are not optimal, health that isn't accessible to all. Um, these are issues that really are tough. So it's it's more than just having the commitment and the fire. It really does take knowing how to organize, how to get the resources you need to get the job done, how to work with volunteers who, as you mentioned, can can be a blessing and, and sometimes difficult. So knowing how to put all those resources and people power to work for you is, is really the key. I was speaking to a librarian yesterday. I was donating a book to our local library, and he said, you know, uh, we have a, a Friends of the Library group, and, and the, uh, there are a couple of sweet little old ladies who have been doing this for 15 years, and they just don't get it that we've got to do some other things in the community besides just have a, a book fair every year. And he said, I don't know how to get them motivated. And I said, well, <laughs> part of the problem is you only have these two individuals who have been doing it for 15 years. So you've got to really think, how can you ramp up this uh, Friends of the Library that you have? Your book is broken down into four parts. Let's just kind of address each part uh, briefly. Part one, again, the analogy of building a campfire. Part one, before you build it. So tell us about what you're trying to accomplish there with the analogy of the campfire and then putting together this coalition. Right. So in the beginning, you're just going to do an environmental scan. When you're getting ready to, to build a campfire, it's not just a matter of plopping the logs down and throwing a match on it and hoping it lights. You've got to take a look at, you know, is there fire danger in the area? Is the area flat and level? Are you going to be able to be out of the wind at a certain point? So you, you take a look at what's going on in the environment. And in a community coalition, it's the same way. What other things are happening in the community that you can build on? Who are the strong leaders that you can rally? What are the issues that really resonate with people? What are the possible barriers to getting the work done that you want to get done? So really taking a look at those things before you ever get started and deciding, do we need a coalition to do this? Could it be done by just a couple of organizations, or do we really need this more intense collaborative effort? Part two is build it. Again, the analogy between the campfire and the coalition. Part two, build it. Right. Build it in, in a campfire situation. You're going to be looking to make sure you have the right uh, kindling. You've got tinder there. You've got uh, different kinds of logs that burn at different temperatures. You've got a ready supply of fuel wood. You've made a decision on you know what size fire you're going to build, who's going to keep the fire going. So all of those issues come up. And in a coalition, the same thing. Instead of gathering wood, you're really gathering people and organizations to your issue. You're building a structure, just as a fire might have a particular log cabin or a teepee structure. A coalition can have a variety of structures. And it just depends on how your community operates, what's comfortable for them, but how do you build kind of this democratic, collaborative relationship, and who's going to lead it? So very similar issues you've got to think about. Part three, make it work. Make that campfire right, so, work. Make that coalition right. work. 
Right. So, you know, getting that, that spark, getting the, the match or your lighter fluid or whatever you're doing to get the fire going um, is, is actually usually not the hardest part. It's how do you keep it going? How do you make it burn warmly, do the job you're supposed to do, whether it's keeping people warm or cooking food or whatever. For the coalition, it's engaging people in a way that makes them feel like they've accomplished something. So everybody has a role. Everyone knows what they're supposed to do. They start to put together a plan that has measurable outcomes, that has a time frame that's very specific, and they know what's their role in bringing that plan to fruition. What's it going to take in terms of resources, both in-kind and cold, hard cash, and what are the strategies that have been proven to work or at least look promising, like they will work, to focus on whatever issue you're concerned about? And, of course, after you get that fire going, you want to keep it going. You want to part four is sustain it. Right. So you've got to feed that fire. You've got to prepare for, uh, you know, you get all of a sudden some damp wood. You get wind come up. You get uh, rain coming in. You've got to know how how do we keep this fire going and make it effective. And in some cases, when do we put it out? When is it time? When has it done its work? And, and there's certainly a, a good Smokey the Bear way of doing that. In a coalition, very similarly, you've, the, the building it, the putting it together is usually the exciting part. Getting the work done is exciting. And then all of a sudden you get into the part of realizing this is going to take a little while. This is harder than we thought. So what, what are the things you put in place to assure that the coalition, the partnership is going to be around long enough to get the work done? So how do you sustain the interest and energy? How do you keep those volunteers motivated? Um, what, how do you change the structure if you need to do that? How do you readjust your goals, get a little more realistic and, and understand how much you really can accomplish? And in some cases, decide that we've really done what we can do. It's time to end this collaboration or morph it into something else. And this book is much different than a kind of a textbook approach. You're, you're basing it on research and theory, but it's more for the person that, as you put it, is right in the trenches. Right. They're, they're in the trenches. They, they are, they've, actually, people have been asking me for this book, uh, not specifically this book, but a book like this. So my original textbook, and it, it is a textbook, and it's used in um, undergraduate and graduate courses in social health, social work, and public health, and anthropology, and all those fields. Um, but it, it really is a tome. It's a heavy book. It's 600 pages. It's very heavy on theory and research. It also has some very practical applications to it. So people began to ask me as I speak around the country and work with coalitions around the country, how can you make this a little more palatable for our volunteers? <laughs> when we show them this book, we kind of scare them off, and then they're, they're not ready to learn a little more about it. Yet we don't want to speak down to them. We, we really want them to learn something and have some, some meat to it and have some really practical ideas that can be put right into action. And so that's how I decided to, to do this book. I began talking about igniting the community to, to an idea, to a goal, and then it came into the, the fact of how can I make this a, a simpler, more graphically representative book. So lots of bullet points, lots of tables, lots of step-by-step -step actions that you can put into place. What kind of community change would you say your book hopes to promote? 
We're looking for big change. <laughs> we're not looking for just another program because those are expensive to maintain. We're really looking for change in policies, uh, change in the environment, change in uh, practices and behaviors that people engage in, changes in systems. So things like you know, making uh, restaurants and businesses and, and organizations smoke-free, uh, tobacco-free campuses, uh, looking at uh, really changing the whole culture around alcohol use with youth and with um, with adults also. So, you know, what is there such a thing as a, as a, a light buzz? <laughs> really not. You're either you've either really had too much to drink or not. Uh, we're looking at making our streets. There's an initiative out there now called Complete Streets, where our streets are not only for cars. Uh, but really, how do we provide for bicyclists? How do we provide for people using wheelchairs and people pushing strollers? How do we make our downtowns revitalized by slowing the traffic down and making it safer for children? So we're looking at really very large issues that require sometimes a change in policy and sometimes just a change in the way an organization operates. In some cases, a change in law. What do we do when people are really working hard and, you know, literally fighting that good fight, the brave fight, and unfortunately nothing happens? Well, then you've got to look at how you're working. <laughs> because it may be that you're working very hard doing a lot of things, but not doing the things that really count and make a difference. And that's oftentimes what I find, that people are really working hard. They're putting together, you know, community fairs, and they have brochures, and they have educational classes, and they think that this really, by just being busy and doing this multitude of things, it's going to make a difference. But honestly, we have to look at those things that are harder to do, that take longer, that maybe seem less gratifying as you're doing them. You know, if you're involved in any kind of advocacy effort uh, where you have to actually work with your legislators, work with your city council and your board of supervisors to, to make things work differently in your community, that can be very frustrating work. But those are the, when those changes are made, then you start to see really th these broader changes happen, these outcomes happen that you're looking for. And I think sometimes it's just a matter of working hard but not being properly focused. So taking on too much some of the time. In some cases, people are working hard, but there's not a strong leadership that's constantly keeping this laser-like focus on what do we expect to accomplish, what's realistic to accomplish. So sometimes it's the structure, sometimes it's the, the way things are organized and operating, and in some cases it's the kinds of activities that you're doing. So if, if things aren't working, my usual idea or, or suggestion is to really take a step back, stop doing for a little bit, and really thinking how can we be more focused, more energized, more productive. And usually you can come up with what the reasons behind why you're not accomplishing things, even though it feels like you're putting a lot of effort in. And as we all know, change often works very slowly, so how can we measure our success? Well, you've got to measure it in small bites. <laughs> so, for example, if, when I think back to some of the work around uh, clean indoor air laws, for example, and, and making, let's just take something like making 
you know, restaurants and, and workplaces uh, tobacco-free. It doesn't just happen all at once because there's, there's a pretty strong opposition in this case in the terms of uh, tobacco companies and, and folks who want to keep that revenue stream going. So you've got to start by first getting the message out about you know, why tobacco use is, is harmful, why um, it's, it's dangerous for children and youth to begin smoking, you know, why it's dangerous for people's health to continue smoking. And so you begin with some of those that messaging. And then so getting people to start to change their attitudes and think a little bit about how could, how does this affect me? How might this affect my children? Even if I continue to smoke, perhaps I can smoke outside instead of in my house or in my car. And then once you begin those attitudinal changes coming about, then you can begin to start working on those goals of really making some policy change. But again, that doesn't happen once. You may have to go four or five times back to your city council. And the way you measure it is, okay, we've got you know, eight members on our council. This year we convinced four of them to, to vote for this, this policy change. And next year let's, make, let's try to get at least two more. Let's try to get at least four more. And that's one way you can measure in small steps your success. Or let's get, we can't do the whole thing, but let's start with restaurants and make them smoke-free. Then we can perhaps move to, to larger workplaces. So really chunking out the work into doable bites um, can help people see progress. And I, I like to have an annual report card with my coalition where we, we look and really say, okay, what do we expect to accomplish? Let's give ourselves a, a grade and mm-hmm. see what, what we have to mm-hmm. do different next year. We've been listening to Frances Dunn Butterfoss. She is the author of her book, Ignite. Getting Your Community Coalition Fired Up for Change. Francis, tell us how to get your book. You can get my book on uh, the Author House website, on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble website. Um, and if you just click onto those, even if you can't remember the title, just Butterfoss is kind of an unusual name, the books will come right up. It's in paperback, hardback, ebook, for all tastes. Well, thank you so much for being with us on Author Thanks, Talk. Steve. Enjoyed talking to you. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Half questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Living More Than Okay, Spiraling Up to Abundant Living, and the author is Frank Colson, 
And Frank joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Frank. Hello, Steve. Uh, thanks for uh, having me on the show. Great you're here because you're going to help us focus on the challenges of life that some people get hung up on, you know, just kind of going through the motions. Of some people need to answer some questions. Do you merely exist through each day? Do you ask yourself, is this all there is to life? Well, you've got some very strong answers for them. And, uh, you know, as you say, uh, reflective journey on aspects of positive psychology and other related concepts to help you to move beyond going through the motions to thriving with purpose and enjoying life to the full. I mean, I think everyone wants that, but boy, so many just don't know how to do it, I guess. Is that is that what it is? I mean, you're a counselor. You deal with all kinds of folks at uh, all different ages. Right. That's what I've observed in clients. I'm a college instructor. I've observed it in seeing students and their personal lives. And, and also, as I personally reflect over uh, growing up in a small town, just observing people around me, I just felt most people sadly just exist through life rather than flourish in life. It's very challenging to, and, and sad, when you meet people that are just kind of uh, feel are living a boring life when life is so filled with opportunities, but for some reason they don't see it that way. I, I guess, uh, you know, a lot of folks just don't have a real strong uh, uh, self-image, I guess. Yeah, I think a lot of it deals with self-image and uh, mindset, the way they think about their lives. Um, I'm a big believer in cognitive uh, behavioralism that focuses in on our, our, the quality of our thinking. Yes, and we're going to discuss that critical thinking as you explain mm -hmm. it. Uh, but first of all, let's learn a little bit about you, your background, and how this book came about. Okay. I grew up in a small industrial uh, town in uh, Barberton, Ohio, northeastern Ohio. And I, uh, uh, there, I, I was always kind of a reflective observer type uh, child and teenager growing up looking at life around me. And I wanted to get on to bigger, better things. So I did my undergrad and first master's in Chicago. Uh, but wherever I went, I always like noticed that... Uh, uh, people don't live uh, flourishing lives. They just seem to exist in lives in their living. And uh, um, I, in Chicago, I met my wife, and we moved down to uh, southern tip of Texas in Brownsville, Texas. And that's where I first got my uh, first job working with college students. And that, that's just a passion of mine, seeing helping college students uh, work on their career dreams and their life dreams. But also in discussing and talking to college students, I really started hearing the word boredom and boring a lot. You know, they saw classes as boring, life as boring. And I, I felt that's one thing that hinders us. Uh, it's kind of like Thoreau's famous quote, uh, most men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the songs still in them. And, and that's what, uh, as I was reading uh, more and more of uh, Dr. Seligman, Dr. Uh, Tal Ben-Shahar's works, I, it really caught on to me that there's a side of psychology that can help people 
live out that song in them and move from desperation to thriving in life. And so with that experience that you've had, you just, you know, you just had a lot to share, and, and thus the book? Yes, um, I had the privilege of taking an online course with Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, and he uh, uh, encouraged us in the class to do something to promote the principles of positive psychology, and that was back in 2009, and I thought, you know, I'll try writing a blog about it. <laughs> and so I started sharing my thoughts on uh, blogs, on my blog, and then people said, you know, why don't you turn that into a book? And I thought, oh, who's going to read my book? <laughs> and, but then I realized, oh, wait a minute, that's, uh, that's thinking, thinking. <laughs> so I better uh, uh, give it a try. And uh, I, I, over the past uh, two years, I've been working on compiling the essays in the book. And, um, and there it is. <laughs> that's how it came to be. You just mentioned that thinking uh, and how important it is to be involved in critical thinking. Help us understand that principle of critical thinking and the, and the great results that can come from it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, within the book, I don't like list any like emphasis on the chapter, on the essays, but really when I think about it, uh, the essays on critical and creative thinking, how we use our minds, to me, is the most important element uh, because it's through our thinking that shapes our behavior. In uh, critical thinking, uh, Richard Paul's little quip of uh, critical thinking is uh, thinking about your thinking while you're thinking in order to make your thinking better. And the whole concept is... is improve our thinking. Don't be passive, but be active in improving our uh, thought lives. And uh, too many just respond passively through life with their thought processes and react rather than uh, proactively act out their lives. Um, and so I just feel it's so important. That, that stinking thinking I mentioned earlier, that comes from Dr. Albert uh, Ellis. And, mm -hmm. and again, a lot of our problems in life, if you think about it, it stems back to the quality of our thinking as we're you know, going about our daily life and acting out our lives. Yeah, I remember saying, I don't know who said it first, but... Thoughts precede action. So our thinking, as you've pointed out so well, is so, if you will, critical to our future. So what is it today? I mean, this country is facing all kinds of challenges. What has happened where so uh, many people have maybe lost that, uh, you know, that that vision, that, that uh, dream, that... Uh, a reality that they can create. What, what's, what's going on here? Um, from my perspective and also in, in talking to students, um, a lot of it seems to be we just passively uh, observe media. Like, and I don't want to bash media. There's a lot of good things about you know, TVs and movies and, and surfing online. There's a lot of good in it. But a lot of that is just passively inputting, and, and people are just uh, 
observing without really getting the gears working on in the brain. And so it slowly makes us more passive in the way we are. Um, we don't, we just listen to our politicians and listen to their, uh, their little talks without really thinking through what they're saying because if they give us a nice little promise of a goodie, we want to grab onto that without thinking through are we really going to get it. Um, and so I think there's kind of a almost, actually I've had a number of students tell me, sir, we're just lazy. <laughs> and we're lazy in our thinking. Um, hmm. And I, that's a big part of it. If we just uh, learn to be more uh, proactive in, in taking a hold of our thought life. Um, again, that's why I have the essay on uh, being a bookhead in there too. I really am a firm believer that the importance of reading um, and being well-read helps uh, keep an active mind. Uh, because with, with reading, you're, you're forcing the mind to analyze and question things that you're seeing rather than just passively hearing something come in the ears and where it goes from there, who knows. <laughs> Why is music so important to you in helping to create this abundant living? Uh, it's interesting you bring that up because that is, to me, a unique part of my book in that I place in a lot of the essays songs for people to think through. And I encourage them, I purposely don't give all the lyrics out there because I want to force people, and I've had readers tell me they're doing this, they're going online and listening to the song, which is kind of embedding the meaning of the song in their minds a little bit better. Uh, I, I've always loved music. I, I kind of grew up in a musical family. My grandmother played the piano around the house, and so I've always been attuned to music and the power of it. Um, and I just believe we should be uh, learning from music. There's a lot of good songs out there. I'm always trying to find new songs with uh, meaning, positive meanings to them, um, because it kind of goes in uh, another phrase that pops into my mind, garbage in, garbage out. If you fill your mind with garbage, garbage is going to come out. If you feed it with good, good music, good uh, lyrics that are in music, that's going to build you up. And, I've, and I think I've tried to put in the book a wide variety of songs that people can think through and learn new ideas for living their lives better through the songs. What would you say, where is this coming from concerning the legalization of marijuana? What There seems to be a growing, growing voice out there that that should be all, you know, legalized all over the country. Yeah, you've, that's an item I, I bring up in an essay called uh, Aiming for Natural Highs in the book. And um, I don't try to tell people how to li live their lives, but I just try to give suggestions on how to live a better life. Um, I guess drugs, even marijuana, bothers me because I've seen a lot of negativity happen in people's lives. I had a young student once come to my office and say, sir, 
people say that marijuana is not addictive, but they lie. I'm addicted. And the young man had started smoking marijuana at age 12, and here he was as a 19-year-old in college. And he said, sir, you know, I just, I just go back to my dorm, I smoke weed, and I just don't have any motivation to study. We got him some help to get off of it, and he graduated with a stellar grade point average. Um, I, I really believe a lot of the research is kind of hidden on marijuana, and again, people will say, well, that's just your opinion. But I've read a lot of uh, research that shows the negative effects on the mental abilities on long-term marijuana use. And my belief in aiming for positive natural highs is why, why not live life to the fullest in a rational way, in, in fully enjoying it instead of ingesting substances in you to get a quickie good feeling for yourself and you know time will tell what this is going to how this is going to play out personally i don't think it's going to be a good thing uh, but we'll just have to see how it uh, plays off across the country let's finish our discussion about this topic that you want everyone to consider thankfulness as a lifestyle explain that Mm -hmm. yes um there's been a lot of research on gratitude and thankfulness in positive psychology, and uh, I started thinking about it back because uh, Thanksgiving was always one of my favorite holidays, and I've just seen so much materialism come in with Christmas, and it kind of goes from October to right into Christmas, and I call Thanksgiving Day the forgotten holiday. <laughs> And, and there's just so much good research that shows the, uh, the positives of being a thankful person, having an attitude of gratitude. It helps in, uh, physiologically, in uh, uh, blood pressure, uh, heart conditions, uh, just overall health. And even once in a seminar, I started out, uh, I, I had a full room of like 50 people and I asked them, does some people want to share one thing they're thankful about? And I had about 10 people come up with little things they were thankful for. And then I stopped and asked the audience, how did that make you feel? And people immediately started saying, oh, I feel so much better. Oh, I came in here kind of tired, wondering if I really wanted to attend this session, but I feel really good now. Just, just being thankful even lifts up our spirits and so i'm a big believer in i I think that's one of the most important essays in the book is on uh, thankfulness because i think we need to be more of a thankful people uh we live in a great country uh we have so much good in this country to be thankful for and sometimes sad to say i believe we take it for granted We've been listening to author Frank Coulson, his book titled Living More Than Okay, Spiraling Up to Abundant Living. Frank, tell us how to get your book. Okay, you can uh, get my book at the uh, publisher website, Author House. Uh, uh, 
website. It's also available on barnesandnobles.com and amazon.com. And also you can request it at your local bookstore. I'm a big believer in bookstores, so I'd encourage people to go into your local independent bookstore and ask for it as well. Thank you so much, Frank, for being with us on Author Talk. Well, thank you so much, Steve. You have a great day. 